everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. I want to update you regarding several exciting events at Matan. Save the date. Matan will mark 35 years of women's learning with a celebratory Yishai Rebo concert at the Jerusalem Theater on October 8th or the 13th of Tishrei, right before Sukkot. If you will be here in Israel, we would love to see you there. Registration for the coming academic year is well underway. Please check out the Matan website, matan.org.il, for all relevant information. Matan will be running its annual ELO program, and it's a great opportunity to get a taste of Matan and recharge for the coming year. Check out Matan's website and all social media platforms for exact information towards the end of the summer. Matan's Jerusalem branch will be running its annual Tisha B'Av program with keynote explanations as well as a shir by Rav Ari Khan. Matan Beit Shemesh will be running an in-person and Zoom-friendly program with one English and one Hebrew shir at 12 p.m. by Professor Josh Berman and Nava Finkelman, respectively. See the website again for more details. Each week, we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea in that week's Parsha. Today, we will begin exploring the fifth and final book of the Torah. The book of Dvarim can be divided into three central speeches. One historical, usually described as the first four chapters of the book. One focused on commandments, chapters 5 through 26, and the speech of the covenant, 27 through 30. The final four chapters are Moshe's formal goodbye and the closing of the Torah. The first 30 chapters of Durim contain in it significant repetition of earlier passages in the Torah, now told from Moshe's perspective. This repetition and the overlap of these perspectives will be the topic of today's conversation. Parshat Dvarim opens with Moshe's historical overview of the desert sojourn, wherein he mentions events that reflect positively and negatively on the Israelites. He reviews the conquest of Sichon, the king of Emory, and Og, the king of Bashan. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rabbi Yitzhak Blau, Rosh Yeshiva at Yeshivat Oraita, and also teaches at Midrash at Lindenbaum. He is an associate editor of the journal Tradition and the author of Fresh Fruit and Vintage Wine, The Ethics and Wisdom of the Agadah, and has published many articles on Jewish thought. Rabbi Blau, it's an honor to have you here. It is a pleasure to be here. I have to say, I'm one of these like secret fans that you don't know. I'm having a little bit of like celebrity moment here. Uh, I've, I've utilized a lot of your, your writing and my teaching to inform myself and inform students. So first, I want to start with a thank you. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. So we're here to talk about the Book of Dvarim. And the Book of Dvarim actually presents in it several challenges when it comes to understanding how it fits into the broader rubric of the Torah. We're sort of used to something more straightforward of God commands, Moshe says, we have narratives, and then all of a sudden we get to Dvarim and it's a speech and it seems much more Moshe focused and it seems God focused. And Moshe also repeats all of these ideas that we've heard before. And then Bichlav, when we repeat things, but they're different than the way that they're written in previous books, we find ourselves somewhat confused. So. I'm excited to sit down with you today to talk about this idea and and take us into it, however however feels right for you. Okay, great. Maybe before we even get to Chazal or later commentaries, it pays to see how just the very text of Sefer Dvarim, as you say, puts us in a different space. So even the very beginning, how does Dvarim begin? Eila Dvarim asher diber Moshe kol Yisrael, etc. These are the words that Moshe spoke, and God is not mentioned. So this seems to be a speech of Moshe Rabbeinu. And then even grammatically, 
As the parak goes on, Moshe refers to God in third person. Things like, Hashem Elokeinu Diber Eleinu B'chorev. God spoke to us in Chorev. And when Moshe talks about himself, it's in first person, right? The famous pasuk that we read with the Tishbav drop, right? Echa Salavadi is again Moshe saying, how can I bear this burden? So again, even in the very first chapter, there's a sense that Moshe is the speaker. The other thing I would point out is if we do a contrast between earlier Svarim and Dvarim, let's say the Tochacha is a good example. So the Tochacha, this uh, sense of reward and punishment that's promised appears in Bechukotai at the end of Ayikra and in Dvarim. So again, in Bechukotai, it's clearly God's voice. Even think about the words, in Bechukotai Telechu, you go in my statutes. And in Lo Tishmuli, if you don't listen to me. So this is clearly God speaking about what happens if you follow the divine word and what happens if you ignore it. If we then contrast that with Dvarim Kavchet, Right, the second tochacha, all of a sudden it's Moshe referring to how God functions. Right, how does it start there in Kafchet, in Dvarim? If you listen to the voice of God, what's the alternative, unfortunately? And then again, it's consistently third person. Right, who's going to take you away to other nations? God will do this. Right, so we have a real sense that Dvarim seems to be Moshe talking. And earlier parts of the Torah seem to be God talking through Moshe. So again, before we even get to any later thinker, I think the very text of Zoram already starts to open up these questions. Yeah, I'm with you. I think also that let's just review why this might be challenging for people, right? Because if we're thinking of any time we're going to think about the fact that maybe any element, any word, any any letter of the Torah is not something that's directly from God, we get ourselves into very murky, murky waters, right? So, so this question becomes where, what's Moshe's role? Is Moshe considered lesser than God? Maybe, maybe Moshe is, is just, is good enough, right? Maybe coming through Moshe, maybe God tells him, but he doesn't actually tell us straight out. So, so what are different sort of solutions or okay, ideas? So that's an excellent point. Maybe even before solutions, I'll just highlight what you said about why this could be like a theological minefield, as it were. Yeah. So when the Malbim discusses this point, the beginning of Dvarim, he really raises good arguments on both sides. And as you were alluding to, he points out some of the problems of thinking it's Divrei Moshe. So he raises two that I think are particularly uh, poignant. One is, as you said, we have Gemara and other sources that one's not supposed to say that any Pasa comes from, uh, you know, not from the divine source. So are we going to say that a fifth of Chumash is not from a divine source? I think that would already be problematic. And then he also points out, I think you alluded to this before also, there are actually new mitzvot in Sefer Dvarim, right? Some of it is, again, you know, furthering mitzvot we already have, giving more details. But there's some mitzvot we hear about for the first time. Did, did Moshe, like, make up mitzvot? Right, that's a little bit hard to imagine. Uh, on the flip side, again, we did point out the grammatical point that really just seems to be that uh, it seems to be Moshe talking. So there is a bit of a, uh, a conundrum over here. So there are various uh, potential solutions. Uh, so one of them you'll see in the Malbim himself. Okay, it's quite interesting, actually. The Malbim argues that this was originally an independent speech by Moshe. Then God later endorsed it, as it were. Right? God chose to, oh, Moshe, that was a really great speech you gave. And now let's make it part of Torah. Just one interesting thing with the Malbim. Um, the Malbim then says that God didn't necessarily say to do it in the same order that Moshe originally gave it. So it would be interesting, I have to admit, I didn't have a chance to look through Dvarim if Malbim follows through and why the order would change, but I do think that's quite fascinating. Oh, 
God is endorsing Moshe's speech, but maybe the uh, speeches are not relayed in the same sequence that they actually occurred. I think the interesting uh, point to think about regarding the Malbim, which also was interesting for the Malbim to say this because he he's no liberal, I meaning the Malbim is extremely careful when it comes to every other place where he's aware that there are debates surrounding authorship or different ideas that have been offered. He's always very careful to squelch them. I'm speaking about in earlier books, the Torah. So I found it really interesting. I was not aware of the Malbim on this idea um, to read that in preparation for this. It's interesting to me to think about the question still becomes, well, it's sort of that Moshe had a great speech and God says, you know what, I like that. Let's keep, let's put it in the Torah. And it still gives a tremendous amount of authority to Moshe. God says, oh, I can't get, that's good enough material. We're, we're going to keep that for eternity. So it helps a bit, but there's still something provocative, I think, about this idea that Moshe is creating Torah and that it's still making its way into the final everlasting Torah that we're going to give the divine seal on. Okay, Absolutely. And maybe we'll deal with that question by perhaps raising a more conservative possibility and even a more liberal possibility. Okay, so I think the way the morale says it is to fair yourself ends up being with a more conservative possibility. The morale has this interesting idea that there are different perspectives in life. And the other Chumashim are Mitzido, they're from God's perspective, as it were. And Sefer Dvarim is Mitzidenu, it is from a human perspective which they think the morale isn't necessarily saying that it wasn't divine to begin with, but it still can reflect a different perspective. And just to give you one example, the morale might use this to explain the discrepancy in the Sarat HaDibrot. But if you look at the Dibrot, uh, we know, of course, that the version in Shemot is not identical to the version in Dvarim, especially regarding the mitzvah of Shabbat. So the version in Shemot says that uh, we keep Shabbat as a zecher lebriat olam. We're remembering that God created the world, and the version of Devarim, of course, says that it is Zecher Yitziat Mitzrayim. It's a commemoration of the Exodus. And arguably, the Maral's focus might work out well. Like, if we're focused mostly on God, then the most significant thing is that God made the world. Right, so that is the perspective in Sefer Shemot. But if we're talking about Am Yisrael, right, obviously Am Yisrael benefits from creation. But in a great way, like our whole national formation is a function of Yitziat Mitzrayim. So then from the human perspective, that becomes the focus. So again, so I think the morale might be a way of differentiating between Dvarim and the other Sfarim, but perhaps in a more conservative vein. It's interesting because, first of all, I, don't, I haven't read enough of, uh, of Rav Breuer, but the language here about the Pchinot is obviously very reminiscent of Rav Breuer's approach. So I don't know if he outright is borrowing from the Maharal, because I remember learning that he was borrowing from Rav Cook, actually. So I don't know what the relationship is between them. But the other thing is that I'm, I'm also not totally clear on how the Maharal helps us, meaning it gives us new language to say we have Torah that's more, it still means that it's from, it's human given. What, what part am I missing here in the Maharal? Okay, so first of all, I like your point about Rav Breuer a lot. I should have thought of that myself. <laughs> because we, you're right. The idea that the same event, the Torah might choose to present twice from different angles. Which I'll just say also is a sort of back information here that's significant is that Rav Breuer was famously responding to biblical criticism. Correct. And that he was saying that it's not two different authors, it's two different perspectives speaking about the same event, for right. example. So I'm just that's just uh, Rav Breuer on one leg, which doesn't do him justice. But, okay, so back to the Maharal. Okay, um, so I, I'm not sure how the Maharal would deal with the grammatical point. I just thought that when the Maharal talks about these different angles, it's more open for the Maharal to say it's all divinely dictated. 
Just God dictated, let's say, Sefer Shemot from the divine perspective, and he dictated Sefer Dvarim from the human perspective, with a focus on the human perspective. Okay, that's yeah. almost what I might have suggested earlier in the opening with sort of when I was jumping the gun, that maybe it was still given by God, but right. it was given by God through right. the, right. a little bit like prophecy later on, meaning right. a lot of prophecy that we have in later books. So sometimes it says, Ko'amar Hashem, but sometimes it doesn't say that God said it, but we still assume that it was the prophetically inspired speech. So right. it would be something more like that. Right. So that, again, would be the more conservative angle than in theory Malbim. Yeah. But I think also that it's in theory a more liberal angle which this is a terminology you get a bit in Rav Sadok, But if it's okay with you, maybe I'll use, can I use the Ibn Ezra first as a... Sure. Okay. Yeah. So the Ibn Ezra... And then you'll have to tell us who Rav Sadok is. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> so the Ibn, <laughs> the Ibn Ezra has a really interesting thing trying to deal with discrepancies between the Dibrot in Shemot and the Dibrot in Tvarim. And he makes a couple of points. Sometimes he ends up saying that, you know, it's the same... F- Meaning, just we switch the terminology, right? For example, the Ibn Ezra says, uh, maybe Zohar and Shammar really mean the same thing, okay? And if we don't get all uptight about the shift, really they have the same meaning. What I found more interesting is sometimes Ibn Ezra says that it's almost like the first shear, like Moshe Rabbeinu was giving shear on their Sededibrot. And when you give shear, you don't only quote what came before, you explain it and you elaborate upon it. And one example I found really interesting uh, the count in Shmot already said that the Eved and the Ama, your slave and maidservant, also get to rest on Shabbat. So says the Ibn Ezra, when Moshe Rabbeinu was, as it were, telling it over in Dvarim, Moshe said to himself, oh, where does that theme come from that the slave should rest? That's because Shabbat also has a Zechel Yitzhiah Mitzrayim component. Or maybe even more directly, means you should be sympathetic to your Eved and give your Eved Nama a day off a week. So again, he might still be in Malbim territory in that maybe God endorsed it at the end, but in a very profound way, this was Moshe's initiative. Moshe is giving shear, as it were, on the account in Shemot, and sometimes giving shear involves a certain amount of elaboration. So that, I think, is already moving things pushing things more, perhaps more to the liberal side. And we'll get to Rav Tzadok in one second. But Rav Tzadok even uses the phrase, which we don't have in Ibn Ezra, that it's kind of the beginning of Shorish Torah Shabal Peh. That, pretty remarkable, we'd think of Torah Shabal Peh starting after Chumash, that did that Sefer Dvarim on some level is already like the first flowering of the oral law, where humanity has a role in the interpretation and application of Torah. So the idea that comes to mind when you speak about Ibn Ezra here, which in general, by the way, I'll say for all our listeners, that if you're looking to read one commentator on the Ten Commandments, read Ibn Ezra. I think that he has some of the greatest new thoughts or uh, refreshing thoughts on the Ten Commandments. So the idea that comes to mind when speaking about the Ibn Ezra, and then that last sentence perhaps in, in Rav Tzadok, is the phrase inner biblical exegesis, which is a phrase that was coined by Michael Fishbane, who was a Bible scholar, but it, it has its roots in many other places as well. But he really developed it as a methodology where he would speak about, for example, much later books in Tanakh, like Daniel or Direi Yamim, where they will present an idea from earlier books and basically give commentary on them, taking an idea, developing them differently. 
And so that's really a similar idea that we're saying here. But of course, as you're saying, it's much more provocative because we're speaking about it within the Torah itself. Either way, we have to figure out how to deal with the fact that Moshe speaks about mitzvot differently than they're spoken about in earlier books of the Torah. And of course, that we have a lot of Torah Shabbat that deals with that. So that idea really comes to mind. And I think that in general, it's a really um, it's a really important concept. I'll bring up one example that we actually spoke about, I believe, in the episode on Bechukotai with, uh, with Lani Sachs, where we spoke about the idea that later on, really almost the last page of most people's Tanachim, there is, there's, the, the Reimim seems to suggest that we go into exile for not keeping Shemitah. And that is an idea that sort of combines the laws of Shemitah. It combines all of the texts about exile and puts them together, essentially, and says, there's nowhere that it says specifically anywhere that it was because of Shemitah. We have many other things that we did very poorly uh, that it said straight out in other prophetic works that for that reason we were exiled. But that is is what could be one example of what we call interbiblical exegesis. Somebody makes this connection, Ezra, whoever is writing Divrei Yamim, is making this connection between the two, that, well, Shemitah is something that preserves us in the land of Israel. So if we lost out in the land of Israel, it must be because we weren't keeping also that mitzvah, which is the hallmark of living in Israel. So that sort of, it threw me there when we spoke here about uh, about the Ibn Ezra's perspective on the, on the Ten Commandments. Okay, so I want to say two things, perhaps for those listeners who might be a little bit theologically uncomfortable now. Oh, no. (laughs) No, no. We're here with you. We're holding your hand. One is, I would like to point out, this line of reasoning doesn't begin with, you know, Ibn Ezra, Maral, Malbim, Ratzadok. There's a Gemara that really should be quoted. The Gemara talks about the difference between the two Tochachas, and it says that we don't like to stop in the middle of the Tocha. You might notice it's a very long aliyah, because we don't stop in the middle, and uh, we read the entire thing at once. Okay, now then there's a Gemara that says, in Megillah, Daflam, but Aleph, that that's only true for the Klalot in Vayikra. But the ones in Devarim are different. And the Gemara says explicitly why, because one is Mipi Agvura, and one is Mipi Moshe. So again, we can interpret the Gemara in different ways, but already Chazal had a real sense that somehow there's something different going on in Sefer Devarim than what might be going on in other books of Chumash. So first of all, I think there is a real you know, rabbinic pedigree for this idea. The second thing I'll say, and again, you're totally right that applying it to Chumash is a bit more radical, but in some ways the whole idea of Tarsha Balpeh is radical. Meaning to the degree we think that humanity has a role in the working out of Halakha and the elaboration of Torah, Maybe we think, you know, humanity is flawed. We get things wrong all the time. We have lousy reasoning and the like. Maybe the ideal religious system wouldn't have that at all. But somehow we seem to think in Judaism that, no, humanity should play some role in the shaping of the Torah. Now, obviously, that is a larger conversation why that is. But I think once we acknowledge that, maybe it's not so crazy that it could even be part of Sevedorim that already, again, not... I'm not saying that Sefer Dvarim is like, you know, Abai and Rava and Masechet, you know, but Metziah. But there really is a sense of uh, some kind of human component making a contribution. I think we should just realize that's part of our tradition. And maybe it starts a little bit earlier than we thought. Yeah, I think that, you, you know, you sort of hinted at it, but... There are so many examples in the Torah where the thought is there that it should be from God, but then it changes and it goes to man. Meaning we have that in the book of Breshit, where initially everything is God-given and then we slowly move to the human side. We have that in the Luchot, where we have, you know, the God-given and then the human, the humanly created 
Uh, there are so many examples of that where we have sort of God handing the baton over uh, to humans. So I think that that I agree with you, that what might be new or, or perhaps unsettling for some might be this idea that it started earlier than we thought. But even within Torah, well, before Devarim, we have all of these subtle, sometimes literary, but very present ways where God is saying, yeah, this is going to be on you, right? That this is eventually going to be your thing, and it's going to be for you to develop and to create and to obviously pass on to future generations. Yeah, it's a very sharp point, meaning we've been discussing till now just the world of mitzvot. But to realize, like, in the larger world of biblical narrative, similar things might be going on. Yeah. Right there. There's this great book. It's called The Disappearance of God. Uh, I forget now who wrote it, but he basically speaks about that, meaning the different places throughout Tanakh where God essentially fades himself out uh, right. of different stories. Right. A very simple example is the fact that other than appearing to Yaakov, God does not speak to any of the sons of Yaakov. Um, God isn't there in that in that revelatory way to his sons, the way he's there to the earlier patriarchs. And he comes back again, obviously, and we'll have a very close relationship with Moshe. But even just that pattern within Sefer Breshit is this, he suggests, and others do as well, really reflects this idea that God is saying, the world is yours. I initially started at the center of the stage, but right. but that's not the way it's going to continue. Right. Jews, you could extend your theory to larger Jewish history also. We have a sense that Bayit Sheni is not nearly as miraculous as Bayit Rishon, and maybe again, there's a God is further, as it were, handing the keys over to humanity. Right, you have to do it now. And I'll just reference a much earlier episode in the series I did with Tanya White, where in our fourth episode of that series on, on suffering and Jewish sources, where she speaks about the definitely provocative and radical theology of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, where he speaks very much about that, that he calls thou the period of the third covenant, and now we're at a time where really God is completely has handed the reins over to humans. And so this idea, you know, isn't only present in utterly provocative ways, but I think that it's present in very basic ways also in the Torah as well. Uh, yeah. I, the truth is I've been meaning to read that Ray Greenberg essay for years. I, don't, I should find out where it is. It's online. But, uh, okay, but yeah. I believe he has the sense of three epochs in Jewish history. Yep. One where God is really in charge, one where it's shared responsibility, and then moving to modernity where, where it's, it's full human responsibility. Yeah. yeah. I found that it was it was meaningful and very impactful. I think that you know people will think about their versions of Hashkacha Pratit and you know, how God is involved in the world today, but I think that it's... It's an idea that's worth reckoning with. Okay, I want to just um, talk about something I love, since you mentioned I should introduce Rav Sadok, because I think it's important in terms of like where we search for sources. Okay, I am personally not very Hasidically inclined. No I, way. <laughs> I know, shocking to the crowd. And I was surprised to see him on your page. <laughs> so, and yet I love Rav Sadok, because I, I think it's a mistake when we divide Jewish thinkers between the, like those that are on our team and those that aren't on our team. Life is usually much more subtle and complex than that. I just have a funny story, which is that this year in my work in Midal Oz, where I work uh, with younger women, so I did a whole year chabur with them on Sidkat Tzadik. And what I said to them was, I want to pick something that we're all totally on equal footing. I said, I come here and I'm in my pajamas. Do you know what I'm saying? Meaning I have nothing <laughs> to say. Uh, and and Sidkat Tzadik is actually... It's it's a learned work, meaning it's all based on on the Gemara and starting in the Gemara and Brachot and... And it was a really, really meaningful experience, and it, it totally whet my appetite for more. So I'm excited to. Okay, very exciting to hear that my podcast partner also likes Rav Sadok. I did not know that. <laughs> Everyone talks about him. It's kind of like Rabbi Nachman. You can't like live in 2022 and not not start reading these people. Okay, so just very briefly, Rav Sadok grew up as a misnaget. He was born in 1823. For personal reasons, he had to meet a number of rabbis, and he met the author of the Meashiloch, the Ishbitzer, and this impacted him. He decided to become a chassid of the Meshilach, and the last 13 years of his life, he had his own Hasidic court. That was from 1887 to 1900. 
Uh, I think Yosef, you said something very sharp. I feel like he was such a major Talmud Chacham. Obviously, other Hasidic thinkers are also, but you really get it in Rav Tzadok. Like the sheer quantity of sources he has, and it's from all over the place, uh, Gemara, Zohar. He just, Rav Tzadok just knew Torah. And I just find him to be a very, very insightful thinker. And uh, in that sense, again, I think here you have a good example where like the larger search for meaningful sources is helpful. Like you might say, oh, I'm giving a shear on Sefer Dvarim, so obviously, you know, Ibn Ezra and Malbim could have their place. But what could Rav Tzadok possibly contribute? But here I think we understand that that's not true. Rav Tzadok had this very sharp formulation of the Shorish of Torah Shabal Pen Sefer Dvarim. And that, I think, became an important model in our, uh, in our discussion. Okay, so just very briefly, so those of you who want to start le- learning Rav Tzadok yourself, <laughs> okay, Rav Tzadok has svarms such as Tzidka Ratzak and Resisei Laila that aren't really a commentary on something specific. And he has a commentary on Chumash called the Preet Sadiq, which I'm about to quote from. I'll just warn you, actually, just in my experience, I actually do not find Preet Sadiq his greatest work. Okay, even though many Hasidic Rebbe's, we do them on Parsha. I would, if you want to start, I'd actually recommend Tzidka Ratzak as the place to start. Okay, but in the Preet Sadiq, he has a section on Breshit called Kedushat Shabbat, and he is talking about uh, Moshe Rabbeinu here. So he says, here we go. Uh, Moshe said them on his own in Dvarim. And yet, it's part of the written Torah. So he did get the mitzvot from God at Sinai. And Gam Advarim Atzmam Shitsum Piatzmo, the low Nemrabem Vidabashem Kodim Gamze Torshibhtav. So again, Rev Tzadik doesn't want to go all the way. He's not gonna say Dvarim is only Torshibalpet. He's still relating to it as Torshibhtav, even if it doesn't say Vedaber Hashem El Moshe Lemor, which is a phrase absent in Sefidurim. Shekodrab Gamkin him Torishlema, Kmosikatanchilavot. It is just like the idle chatter of Yavot. Their in, conversations in Breshit, yeah, or the, the servant of Avraham, where you have you know, 25 sukim of him telling the story of how he got to work in Avraham's house. They're just as holy as the Halakhod. Okay, well said. Ah, here we go. This is the root of the oral law. What sages say on their own. So I realize Rav Sadiq is to some degree having it both ways here, because he's still very insistent that it's Tarsha Bechtav. But the last formulation is pretty powerful. It is the Shoresh, the root of Tarsha Balpeh. And what is Tarsha Balpeh? What the sages of Israel say independently. So there's a real sense of a human contribution to the world of Torah, and that this begins in a profound fashion in Sefer Dvarim. So the image I have in my mind from Preet Sadiq is sort of like a rope. And on one side of the rope, you have God. On the other side of the rope, you have humans. And I think that the sort of the, the test or the, the ideal that Rav Tzadok is putting forward is that Torah Shebel Pek has to constantly hold on to both of those sides. If, it doesn't, if it's not connected somehow directly to God, in this case, given through God, I agree with you, he's totally playing on both sides here. Uh, later on in later generations, it'll have to be through Psukim. They're going to anchor their, their teachings in Psukim, and that'll be their anchor for God. And the other side has to be that it's connected to the people that they're speaking to. And so I feel like that's a beautiful image. And, and I think also that this is a really important 
different way to open up learning Sefer Dvarim because there are a lot of questions that we have surrounding this. And some of our episodes will focus on them. We'll focus on this idea of comparing the verses or ideas in Dvarim to other books. But I think that as a way to open up the conversation, as a way to open up Moshe's, you know, greatest speeches, I think that this has been a really productive and meaningful way. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.